Hello, my name is Kirby Mallon, and welcome to the Monthly President's Podcast. Today I'm honored to welcome the President of Heritage Food Service in Canada, Ken Beasley. Welcome, Ken. Yeah, thanks, Kirby. Glad to have you. So today, uh, we're looking to get the Canadian perspective uh, from our fellow CFESA members that are up north there in Canada. Uh, and first, I got to say thanks for sending down that uh, freezing, freezing cold air. It's it's wreaking havoc on uh, our our friends down in Texas and in the middle middle of the United States. You know, we just like to share. We're just <laughs> so uh, before we get started, Ken. Um, I, I know a lot of people know who you are. You've been in the industry for some time. Uh, you're a past uh, board member. Um, I had a good time with you when uh, you were on the board. Uh, you're a very thoughtful uh, thinker, and I do appreciate um, the amount of time that you did contribute to CFESA over the years. Um, but uh, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, how you started out in this industry, and how you got to where you are now? Sure. Try and keep it short. Um, <clears throat> I was a longtime customer of a company called Key Food Equipment Services. Um, pro- probably going back 10 years uh, prior to coming to work for Key. Uh, many people who are listening to this will remember Jean Chiquette. He was the owner of, of Key at the time, and I think he's a past president of the Cefesa. And essentially, he wanted to build the company out, expand it. I was looking for some leadership support, and so I got the tap on the shoulder. It's a bit of a funny story because... Uh, when he first asked me about you know changing careers, leaving the restaurant business and coming to work for Key, I, I said, you, you gotta be crazy. I said, in the business I'm in, I said, customers come in looking to have a good time. I said, your, your customers are upset before they pick up the phone. Why, why would I wanna do that? And uh, you know he was persistent. And uh, there came a time in my, my life when uh, from a work-life balance standpoint, I thought that, uh, you know, maybe it was a good opportunity. And, and so in 2004, I left the restaurant industry and came to work for Jean. And just real quickly, go sorry, go ahead, Kirby. No, no, it's super interesting uh, story. And John, it, John was a past president of Cefesa. Yeah. yeah. So that's, that's, that's who taught me the business. Um, I think at that point, he was sort of one of the key leaders in our industry in North America. So I learned from one of the best. Um, we did, uh, he, he wanted to build up the company to sell, which we were successful in doing in 2010, uh, sold it to a small private equity group out of Vancouver. And then in 2014, we turned around and, and sold to the Heritage Food Service Group um, out, of the, uh, out of the U.S., primarily a distribution company with some, with some service. Canada was mostly service with, uh, I would say, a smaller distribution footprint. And then from there, um, under the leadership of John McDonough, we just bought more service companies across Canada. We aligned the three largest service companies, which were Key, R.G. Henderson, and, and Chiquette, and put that under the sort of the heritage banner uh, from a national standpoint. And those three um, regional brands uh, continue today um, providing service in their markets. And then we've done a but another seven acquisitions underneath those um, just to build out our footprint across Canada. So we're now coast to coast. Um, I oversee uh, the service side of our business here. And then, of course, in 2019, uh, Heritage sold to PT Holdings, the Parkstown Group. And um, the distribution part of our business in Canada is now under the 
Partstown Canada brand, and we continue to operate service under Heritage Service, and I oversee um, both sides of the operation. Hmm. You've had quite a ride since, um, since I guess, 2010 there, huh? Yeah, I've really enjoyed it. It's, it's been a lot of fun. Um, you know, what, we, what I started managing and what I manage today are two different things. And I have to say that, uh, you know, even though, you know, I, I wasn't uh, sure at first when I came to work in this industry, just given the fact that we're, we're, we're the, you know, we're, the, cust- we're the, the company that no one likes to call but needs to call, I'd have to say that for the most part, it's been a lot more pleasurable than I would have been would have thought and it's been a whole lot of fun uh, being part of the growth here in Canada as we've expanded the business so it's been great yeah mm-hmm. yeah it's funny it's often we'll say that um, customers are never never happy when they're calling us uh, I've I've found over the years that if uh, if you build those relationships uh, and those relationships become uh, trustworthy on both ends that uh, the call is not as difficult uh when the oven is down because they know you're going to come you're going to fix the equipment uh most likely on the first call you know 85 percent first call fix uh and have the part on your truck and have the technician trained Cephesa certified where they're going to fix the equipment the first time and that's that is a good feeling you are you're right and you know key chiquette rg henderson the heritage group here in canada has been very connected to cefesa over the years um, all of us were members of cefesa prior to being acquired or, or coming together and we maintain that relationship today we really believe in the master certified uh, tech program uh, we put a lot of time and attention to that and um, you know where uh, and we continue to be certified in some of our Cefesa certified with some of our divisions. So we'll, we'll continue that relationship. It's been, it's been very helpful. It's been supportive. Um, and 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 the other part of it, I'd say, is we like to contribute back to the industry, which I think Cefesa gives us a, an opportunity to do. Absolutely, I think uh, we're really grateful to have uh, uh, Canadian friends that are that are joined. Uh, with Cefesa and contribute. And um, you're right about having master certified technicians and having certified companies elevates not only the company itself, but all the technicians also. So it's, it's very nice that uh, that you guys do what you do up there. Uh, and as I said, you know, our, our listeners here today uh, most likely are interested in what's going on in Canada. Uh, as much as I, um, I am sick of talking about COVID, uh, I think the listeners probably are interested on what happened up in Canada. What's uh, you know what what happened in the beginning? I'm, I'm sure you had like a first wave and a second wave, like we did. Um, and you know, here we are in 2021. We're thinking everything. Here we go. Uh, it's going to be a great year. And um, it's you know, I'm I'm still optimistic that's the case. Uh, but uh, it's off to a slow start, certainly in the United States. So um, so I guess why don't you? Just kind of talk about uh, 2020 and, and early on when when COVID kind of hit. I mean, you know, it's a pandemic happens every hundred years, unless you're 100 years old. Um, we've this is the first time we've all been through a pandemic, so I think we learned a lot from uh, many different aspects of this uh, uh, COVID-19 situation, both per- personally and professionally. Uh, why don't you go ahead and give us a little. Uh, background of of what was going on in Canada in the early uh, March days of 2020. Sure, I you know I, let let me let me start by saying you know Canada really followed the same trajectory I would say as the U.S. So 
as we were going through the first wave, uh, you know, the U.S. was going, the whole world, frankly, was going through the first wave. So really no different that way. Um, but there are some uh, there are some differences in terms of, you know, the, the, the scale and scope of, of the uh, pandemic and how it hit us. So I'll, I'll spend a little bit of time just talking about the first wave and, and talk about how it impacted our customers and then ultimately how Heritage responded to the challenge. So, you know, like like the U.S., you know, we got hit and we saw it coming in March. You know, there was noise of it in January. In February, it, it, it you know, we were kind of sitting on the fence a little bit. Is it going to hit us? Is it not? It, it became clear by the end of February it was going to. And I would say by the middle of March, uh, there was no question that we were going to be impacted by this in a major way. And at that point, um, our government essentially mandated a, a shutdown of the country um, sort of through the last half of March, you know, creating social distancing protocols, restaurants were closed, you know, any any place where people could congregate uh, was was shut down. And, and um, I, from sort of middle of March to May, um, our per case or our, our per day case count got up to about 1700, um, which now doesn't sound like a lot. But back then it it was a real concern and uh and you know our customers you know 50 percent of our business here at heritage is with restaurants so you know with that <clears throat> with the uh, provincial governments who primarily drive um you know what happens in the local markets uh, shutting uh in restaurant dining i mean that hurt um, a good chunk of our business and 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 about uh, only 50 percent of those that weren't in the QSR space, in other words, quick restaurant service, um, were able to pivot to any kind of delivery or curbside um, service. Um, you know, they, they, they were impacted uh, to a significant degree. And, 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 and it was only until we hit sort of the end of May, June, when the COVID cases started to drop and uh, it seemed like we had it under control that the local governments began to start opening up dining um, but with social distance measures in place, which mean they were operating at about 30% capacity. Um, one thing that helped them through June, July, and August was the fact that they could open their patios. Um, so, you know, the summer actually came out okay um, from the standpoint of, in terms of where it started, a total shutdown to being able to reopen at 30%. Plus, generally, you know, I told you my background's restaurants, most restaurants that have a decent patio adds about another 30% so to, to your seating capacity. So you actually can have a pretty decent summer and at least have positive cash flow. Um, you know, obviously, with 50% of our business being driven by restaurants, it had a huge impact on our revenue. And, uh, you know, the worst of which we saw in April. Um, so, you know, if I were to look at it from a business standpoint to beginning of the year, Q1 uh, was was I would say okay. Uh, we, we were impacted a little bit in March, but Q2, particularly the first month April, was sort of a, a disaster from a from a sales standpoint. We saw a 60% decline in revenue. And so, you know, as a as a as, you know as a business group, the leadership team, as we were looking at this, we knew we needed to respond, we needed to react, we needed to adjust. And so, you know, April was a really tough month. Um, working through forecasts, figuring out, you know, where's this going to go? How low is it going to go? I mean, we knew we needed to furlough some, some team members. Um, 
And, uh, you know, so we, we, we worked out a bunch of different forecasts from that. We sort of took our best guess. And from there we determined, okay, how many team members do we need to furlough, um, to remain, you know, cash flow positive through this, or at least not be losing a lot of money. And, uh, you know, out of that exercise, our first estimate was that we would need to furlough about 25% of our team members. And, uh, in fact, that's what we did. But as we started to get towards the end of April and we saw how low the sales were dipping, we were really worried about whether or not we had furloughed enough. And, um, you know, so Kirby, we, you know, we, we were about, we did another sort of round of analysis and we were about to furlough another group of people. And then thankfully the Canadian government came up with um, the wage subsidy program, which allowed us um, and, and, and the way the program worked was if you could demonstrate you were down more than 30% in sales, they would support um, your payroll and being able to keep more of your team members uh, working as opposed to furloughing them. So that was a huge support uh, to us. And, and there was a whole another group of people that we were going to have to furlough. And we were able to uh, not have to do that uh, as a result of the wage subsidy about that so very similar uh what happened in the united states um and um you know our first quarter now we're a much smaller company as you know ken uh, elmer schultz the company that uh, my, my wife and i run in philadelphia um, we do have two other branches in, in new jersey and delaware uh, but you know we sit about you know less than 50 employees and um and i uh being a independent uh business owner was hell-bent on not laying anybody off and uh i believe it or not was successful um doing that uh bec only because of the government uh helping out with what's called the ppp the paycheck paycheck protection uh, that um that helped out uh, most sufficient members and it came at the perfect time we had the first quarter uh even though we knew COVID was coming we thought it was coming we had so much in the pipeline that even march was was strong for us even though the phones were not ringing as much uh, but i'll tell you it, it seemed like april 1st like we would pick up the phone and make sure there's a dial tone there because the, the phones are just not ringing and it was such an odd and scary time uh i gotta say and uh so we you know we thought uh, all right well we're not going to lay off on employees we're going to take this time to uh, train, do additional training, more Cefesa testing. And uh, with the help of the government, as I said, we kind of limped through. And we had the same kind of um, throughout the country uh, this summer because of outdoor dining. Kind of, you know, that, that after that second quarter, uh, third quarter was, you know, much better. Uh, and and so very similar was, uh, situation that we had here in the United States. So interesting that you had, it's called the Wage Subsid Subsidy Program in Canada. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Wage subsidy program was the Canadian sort of iteration of, I think what you guys had down there was the PPP. I think you, you described it. Correct. And then, and then you had a, you had a similar second wave up there in Canada. We did. Um, let, let me just walk through a couple of things before we get there. So um, actually let, let, let's talk about the second wave and then I'll come back. Um, so the second wave, yeah, uh, again, you know, mirrored the U S um, I would say Q, Q2, you know, May, June, sales started to come back up. July, August, September, they kind of held steady. 
And then the second wave hit us around the middle of September. And, you know, we went from, you know, 1,700 cases per day up to about 8,000 cases per day. Um, and, and just so you can kind of level set your thinking, uh, Canada versus the U.S., we're about one-tenth um, the population of the U.S. So if you were to look at the way the U.S. was, uh, the U.S. Uh, um, uh, COVID rates, we were about one-third of the U.S., um, and, and the reason for that is that we locked down faster and we stayed locked down longer, I think, than what, what I saw happening in many markets in the U.S. And, and the good news is, as a result of that, we had fewer cases. The bad news is um, we took a greater economic hit. Um, and uh, so the, the concern, you know, through and, and I'll just finish out sort of where things sort of went with COVID in the second wave. We got up to about 8,000 cases per day, which was the peak, which is the, sort of the first week of January. And then we've been on a steady decline since then. So from a COVID perspective, you know, again, following probably very similar to the U.S. except lower numbers, you know, we, we, we came up through, you know, the holiday period and we're back on a decline. So, and I would say that, you know, that adjustment we made to our business back in April, um, you know, we've tweaked since then, Kirby, but for the most part, we haven't had to do much more, uh, too much more uh, in terms of adjusting our businesses to our current sort of revenue reality um, and, and, the, and the business that we're doing today. But look, I want to take the conversation back to, to April because just, just to highlight a few things and, and give you a bit of a sense of our, our, our scope and scale. You mentioned sort of the size of your organization. Well, we're the challenge we had in this whole exercise was that we're coast to coast. So we go from Victoria to Halifax. We've got 300 people working internally. And one of the lockdown, one of, one of the, the, the restrictions that came in was that if you do not have to uh, work in an office, you shouldn't. And therefore, we took that as a we should see if we can get our people working remotely. And I know in conversations with you, Kirby, I don't think you had to do that or, or maybe you did for a while. But our entire office team, this is obviously with the exception of anybody handling parts you know, that physically needs to be there, has been working remotely. So 300 people have been working remotely um, since last April. Um, and we continue to operate that way today. Um, wow. Well, that must have been a huge feat to try to take 300 people and, and get them uh, to work remotely effectively. How did you do that so quickly? You know, I, I just hats off to the IT team. Um, they saw it coming um, and they just they were able to pull together the resources and the technology in, in, a, in lightning speed. I mean, it was done in three weeks. And you know, of course, we had some hiccups in the first couple of weeks. But, you know, we're, we're we've been operating that way uh, up until, you know, till today. And, and, and the team's performing really well. So I have to say that, uh, you know, that, 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 that was, it was great to see that we were able to do that because we were really wondering how we were going to be able to answer the phone and look after our customers. So, you know, phone systems now actually are, are done through soft phones, which go to computers that are set up in people's homes. And, and uh, you know, our ERP system, uh, we're on Davisware, uh, as, as many of those on this call or, or will hear this podcast will will understand uh, has the ability to be able to connect remotely and work. So um, that's all worked out fairly well. I'd say the other challenge we had 
in, in this whole process was, um, you know, I've, I've been in this industry for 17 years and I've never had to furlough uh, anyone before. Um, and so from an HR standpoint, this was really new to us. And, you know, the not all provinces have furlough regulations or layoff regulations. And so they were, we were trying to have to, we were, the HR team was figuring out how we're going to do this. Well, provincial regulations were changing to adjust for the current climate. You know, we talked about IT and what they had to do. The, the HR component of this exercise was just as challenging because hey, we wanted to treat our people right. We wanted to do it in the right way. Um, we wanted to make sure that we were following the guidelines. And, and our hope at that point was everybody would be coming back. I mean, we really, you know, back in April, you know, Kirby, when we first looked at this, we honestly thought that by the end of summer, this will be done, right? And we'll be back to normal. Uh, didn't think you and I would be having this conversation in February, talking about the fact that this problem is extending into 2021. Really didn't. Well, I don't think anybody did. And, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of uh, FESA companies in the United States uh, had to do what you did. I, I think the bigger you, you were, the more it impacted uh, the amount of people that... Um, that are involved in the organization and that you did have to furlough or lay off, uh, unfortunately. But, you know, I think most FESA members care about their employees. And, and obviously you do care about your employees. And I think that most FESA members do that. And um, yeah, so it's, uh, it's been interesting. And um, it's, you know, I've also found that you really can realize uh, the team players that, that, that want to be team players and those that are just working for a paycheck. Uh, Absolutely. So uh, I, enough of 2020. Um, you know, here we are in 2021. As you said, we're all thinking, here we go. We're going to get the uh, the vaccine and off we go. And, you know, everybody's pent up and these restaurants uh, that are closed are going to reopen in some uh, f form uh, or timeline. And, um, you know, I think we're stalled. And I know in the United States, uh, you know, January came along. We were still down 25%. And um, March, you know, I mean, February doesn't seem to be much better. Um, so what do you think, uh, what do you think is going to happen here in, in, in 2021? Do you have any kind of economic forecast or plan that you guys have in place? Yeah. And when we looked at this back in November, when we were putting our plan together, Kirby, we really thought we, we knew that we knew that Q1 would be very similar to Q4. In other words, not much change. I mean, at that point. You know, the, the vaccines were coming. They were in the approval process. We thought that, you know, we might start seeing them around February, March. And so we were hopeful that, you know, um, you know, that that will start to have an impact down the road. But, you know, we didn't see it coming for Q1. So my forecast, I was, I was pretty flat through Q1, but we thought we'd see some improvement in Q2, acceleration in Q3. And Q4, we might get back to pre-pandemic levels. Um, you know, that was the thought back in November. You know, here we sit in the middle of February and, you know, Q1's kind of rolling out the way we had thought. We, you know, January's a little bit stronger, but, you know, not materially. Uh, February looks to be a little bit softer, but it's within sort of you know, striking distance of hitting our target for February. So I think Q1, we're going to be okay. The challenge we have in Canada is Canada does not make its own vaccine. Um, it's we're buying them from companies that are producing them elsewhere. The two that we have approved right now, 
the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccine uh, for Canadian purposes are, are, are both coming out of uh, the European Union. And, um, you know, it started off uh, pretty quick and then they ran into production issues and I'm sure demand issues and, and fulfilling targets. And, and now we've got um, a bit of a challenge getting the vaccines as quickly as we thought we were going to get them. So the Canadian government had made a commitment that they would have everyone vaccinated by September. Um, and they did that by purchasing 400 million vaccine doses from seven different companies. So they kind of took a shotgun approach just because at, at the time when you're negotiating, nobody knew whose vaccine was going to be effective. So, you know, can't, and I think they did the right thing, um, sort of spreading it as wide as they did. Uh, the challenge we're having is we're not getting the vaccines as quickly as the companies had committed to getting them uh, to us by. And, and so, you know, it's put that September date in, in, in at risk, I would say. And so I think the adjustment I would make to my forecast now is I think, you know, I think Q2 will be similar to Q1 uh, because I just don't think we'll have enough people vaccinated. So we're not close enough to herd, any, anywhere close to being having any kind of herd immunity. And I think the health department's going to be reluctant to open things up uh, to the degree that we'd like to see it. Q3, I think we'll start to see uh, a little bit of an increase. Q4, I think it'll accelerate. But I don't think we in Canada are going to get back to pre-pandemic numbers until 2022 in the first quarter. Well, the, well, the key is the vaccines. And uh, in the United States, uh, we didn't take a great approach. It was kind of every state for themselves. Uh, and in, at least in Pennsylvania, um, they, they had a kind of a 1A category, 1B category. The 1A, 1A obviously was the doctors, nurses, uh, people in nursing homes, stuff like that. Uh, and then sure enough, Cephasa um, uh, companies that are fixing cooking equipment in hospitals and nursing homes at one point fell into the 1A category. So um, most of us uh, who own service companies in the United States uh, right now, at least in Pennsylvania, it's not in every state, uh, is eligible for the vaccine at this point in time in the 1A group. Uh, are you guys, it, it seems that Canada did a little bit of better job with, with identifying who gets the vaccine when and how? Well, it's so... Frontline workers first, and a frontline worker is defined as somebody that either works in a long-term care home or um, is uh, is in a hospital situation. So that's number one. After that, it's all age-driven. So um, you know, 80 and older is is one group, then 70 to 70 and 79, and then 60 to 69. So so you get that's how Canada has decided to go with this. Now they've, they've been tweaking this um, since this was first announced and, you know, they're working on some, um, you know, uh, indigenous uh, groups that are further North where there isn't the same level of healthcare available. So they want to get those, uh, those populations looked after first, but by and large, that's the way it's going to roll out. But back to the point I was making earlier, Kirby, I think the U.S. last I checked is about 10% of the U.S. population have been vaccinated. Canada, this is going to highlight the supply problem, we're at 3%. And so we we really, so we like the plan. We just need to get the vaccines in the country so that uh, we can get it done. About that. Okay. Um, Well, let's switch gears a little bit here, Ken. And um, 
uh, you know, I certainly don't want to get into politics, but I am interested on uh, what is happening in Canada as it relates to the U.S. government and, you know, specific changes. Obviously, we have a new president here in the United States. Uh, and uh, so is, th is there, I mean, maybe specific to uh, NAFTA or the U.S.-Mexico and Canada agreement, are there any issues that you can identify for our listeners um, with those two different uh, agreements and, and any struggles that you're having up there in Canada? You know, if we're to look at the puts and takes of the two agree agreements, uh, NAFTA versus the USMCA agreement, um, I would say from a Canadian perspective, um, it's it's there's not much change. I mean, there are specific segments that have been adjusted, but by and large, uh, the economic impact of the, of, of the change to the agreement um, is, is, is minor. Uh, and, and, but, and I'd say actually there's some benefits in there from, a, you know, there was, there was stronger legislation in there with regards to labor laws specific to Mexico and, and some pollution issues, I think, that were tightened up. So I, I, I actually see all that as good, uh, you know, Again, without getting into the politics, we, we, we would struggle a little bit here with, with the, the approach and how it was done, but I think the outcome was, 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 a, was a pretty fair one. I, you know, the listeners probably aren't aware of this, but you know, we are all too aware of this in Canada because you're our largest trading partner by far. But there's about 14 million Americans who rely on trade with Canada to be employed. So, you know, we... We kind of have more, we, we've got pretty good sort of, for lack of a better word, leverage at the table. It's, it's important that this agreement is fair on both sides. And I think where it landed was, was, was pretty good. Good. Okay. Well, that's good to hear. Um, I did have a, a, a kind of a fascination with the Keystone Pipeline and how that has kind of evolved over the years. And uh, I love to hear what, um, not necessarily you think, Ken, but what Canadians in general think about the Keystone Pipeline and now that the permits have been pulled, at least in the United States, uh, and what, what typical Canadians think about that? So typical Canadians, that's, that's, a, that's a loaded word. Um, it really depends on where you sit on the environmental um, sort of uh, line, like if you're a, you know, a, a really focused environmentalist who thinks that oil is bad, then you think this it was great um, that this was canceled. If you live in Alberta that relies on the sale of the oil it produces to essentially drive its economy, then it's a disaster. Um, and and it's it's and and even though I would say Trudeau, our prime minister, has I would call it a strong pro-environment agenda. He was in support of the pipeline, uh, which meant on the Canadian side, we were going to have no issues fulfilling our part. And in fact, the Alberta government had, had already invested over a billion dollars in this, in, in this, in the building out of the pipeline. So, you know, if you're, I, I don't think we can talk from the standpoint of a typical Canadian. I think this is, one of those issues where you've got Canadians sort of on both sides of this issue and feel real strong about their position. Well, same thing here in the United States. It, it depends who you talk to. Uh, we're much more polarized, or I think we are, than, than Canadians are uh, as far as politics. Um, so, but that's interesting that um, you know the oil is there. It's uh, it's going to 
get transported somehow. So, you know, it's back to rail and 18 whalers, which doesn't sound efficient to me at all. No, it's not. And, 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 and I would say if I were to look at this from an American point of view, forgive me for just a minute, um, you know, there was, I, I think one of the drivers in terms of outside of the economic driver and having the oil uh, come from Alberta down into the southern U.S. for refinement was oil security for the U.S. Um, though you're not relying on uh, foreign nations. I mean, you're relying on Canada, but, you know, we're so tight, um, so close, um, so interconnected, both uh, in, in a lot of ways that this really, I think, in, from my point of view, I think was not the right call um, in that it, it, it allows you to maintain something that's needed um, and, and working with a really, you know, a key partner who's, you know, forgive me for saying this, but kind of has your back, right? Well, let's, uh, let's talk about my, my favorite topic, which is the future, Ken. Um, you know, as I said, you know, we could talk about the past all day long, which um, really does not affect what's going to happen in the future. And uh, I can't pr predict the future. You can't either. But um, let's, let's talk about technicians in general. Um, what do you see as the future of, of, of our technicians moving forward with technology once we're out of this um, you know, situation with COVID? Things are going to explode, at least in my opinion, that uh, you, got, you got people with, with a lot of cash. You have, uh, in, at least in, in the United States, 30% of restaurants are going to close for good. Now, when I say they close for good, it's still going to be a building with seating and a kitchen. So someone's going to come along and buy or rent that space and reopen that restaurant, a new name, whatever. But the equipment's going to sit for a year and nothing's going to work or the ice machines are all going to be dirty and, and you know, you know what's going to happen. So, you know, we, we suspect that we will be extremely busy uh, and uh, aligned with what you're thinking is, Ken, the third, fourth quarter of this year. So um, what do you think the future of our, our industry is, is specific to technicians? Let me go back to um, the wage subsidy for a quick second, and I'll, I'll tell you how this kind of, kind of ties into what I'm going to say. Um, the good thing about the wage subsidy is that it allowed us to keep technicians and some administrative staff. Um, the, the downside is we were concerned about productivity and keeping those people active. Um, Heritage has been working on an in-house training program for the last couple of years. And we've been doing it because we really want to be in control of our own destiny and future. In, in other words, if we've got a market where we can grow, rather than just relying on putting in an ad and having somebody show up that's a master certified tech, which, you know, which can happen, but it's becoming rarer and rarer. We, we wanted to make sure we could develop people, take somebody right out of high school, train them and have them um, working as a fully functioning tech within a, a, a couple of years, master certified within five and, you know, build a great life for themselves, which, um, which being a technician is. And so we, we, um, we took the capacity that the wage subsidy gave us and we, took the tech time and had them invest. We invested more of their effort in building out that program, if that makes sense. Um, these are, um, you know, online um, training uh, 
modules that we're building. And, and we, you know, we tried to leverage some of the stuff out of the U.S. The problem is it's all copywritten and, and you, you run into some, you know, authorization challenges. And so we just decided, look, we have the, we have the knowledge here. Let's build it out ourselves. So we've taken advantage of the weight subsidy to free up time for our technicians to be able to work on that. So to your point, what, what's the future look like? I think from our standpoint, um, we don't just want to rely on the schools anymore to provide us with people or other companies that have trained technicians being dissatisfied and coming to work for us. We really want to provide a, a path to a career for people coming out of school that have the right aptitude and attitude that want to fix equipment. So, you know, that's, that's how, you know, out of COVID, we've taken something that I would say was, you know, you know, a negative thing. And we've been able to, you know, use that capacity to build out um, our training ability. So, um, so we're real excited to get this thing kind of closer to being complete. So we begin to use it in a, in a, in an effective way. Excellent. Well, as far as Cefesa is concerned, uh, we're thinking along the same lines, Ken, in the, the issue uh, that, that these young kids are looking at now coming out of high school uh, is, should I go to college? Should I uh, be in debt of, you know, tune of $80,000 after four years uh, and hope that I can find a job being an accountant or whatever, you know, they, they plan on doing? Uh, now, that's one avenue. And that avenue has been a little shaky uh, and it's been... Uh, uh, you know, COVID really brought out the the fact that uh, you, you don't have to go to college for four years, uh, especially if it's online. I mean, part, part of the uh, beauty of, of college or university is the experience, the, the in-person experience, uh, whereas a lot, of, lot is learned. Now, you could spend four years at a college or university, come out with $80,000 in debt, or you're, you could take another pathway, which is you could be hired by, you know, a um, heritage food service and be paid to be trained, right? Uh, the, 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 so your company or, or my company would actually pay to train that person. And in four years' time, they would already have been paid for four years. They would have training. They would have a, uh, a, a job that is very stable and uh, very um, rewarding. Uh, these guys, uh, once they're Cefesa Master Certified and they have years of training, uh, they get paid very well. And um, I think it's it's time to to make our industry a little sexier f for these y younger uh, adults that are coming in to the decision making of what you know, am I going to go to college or am I going to go to work. So uh, that's you know that's what I'm hoping to do as president of Cefesa is to kind of educate these younger kids that they do have options, uh, good options. So, Yeah, I 100% agree, Kirby. I think you're, you're bang on and, and, um, and, and you're right. I mean, not only do we train them in that period of time, but we also cover the cost of the provincial training that they need to take if you've demonstrated that you have the ability to do this and, and, and are good at it. So, you know, it's, you're right. I mean, it's, you know, for, again, for people looking for that kind of work, we're a great option. And like I said, from, from our perspective in Heritage, we're trying to build out the internal ability to, 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 to do that. So that, again, as I said at the beginning of this, we're kind of in control of our own destiny with regards to 
our capacity and our growth. Excellent, excellent. Well, that's uh, that's fantastic. We we are coming up on forty minutes. I, I don't want to um, take too much of your time, Ken. Um, anything you want to mention about technology? As there, I mean, because of COVID, uh, we've all kind of learned to work from home. Uh, you know, I'm sitting here at my dining room table, um, also kind of isolated uh, along the coast down here in New Jersey for for months now. But uh, I I cannot believe how effective and efficient I can be. Uh, by not being in person at my company. And um, to get back to your earlier question, most FSM members did uh, take the majority of their workforce internal and have them work from home, uh, with with the exception of the, the people who have to receive in inventory or, or ovens and stuff like that. Uh, but um, in, in Philadelphia, we're, we were not, uh, at Elmer Schultz, uh, we were not 100% paperless. So we had to have some internal staff uh, and we worked. We worked to do, um, you know, a lot of things that were not paperless. But um, we we spread out our employees. We built additional office space, um, and we uh, kind of moved everybody, you know, spread out a little bit. And the executive team was working from home most of the time. So it'd be interesting to see uh, how much of that stays that way, and yep. how much of it goes back to you know cram, cramming everybody into a building again. Listen, I've got markets where the average commute is an hour and a half, and they're loving working from home. It's going to be really tough, you know. And there's some jobs I think that uh, once things open up, that you know, there's just conversations that happen around the water cooler or between a, a someone taking a service call and dispatching a service call. You overhear something. I mean, all that kind of communication is invaluable. So there's a group of people that we think, um, you know. It would we'd be better served uh, for, for for the organization, but for the customer as well to be working in the same space. But there's a bunch of functions, uh, you know, accounting, uh, potentially, you know, you know, payroll, you know, a few sort of technical things that we do that you could work from home, no problem, and and not miss a beat. And you know, hey, if you're getting back an hour and a half of your life every day, that's 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 quality of life, and I think it makes you more valuable as an employer. You know, I, I there's a and I, in, in light of the time, uh, as, as you pointed out, there's a, there's a quote by Churchill that says, never let a good crisis go to waste. I've been thinking about that in advance of this, in advance of this call. And I was just thinking about what, have, you know, what have we, what's been the positive of COVID? And if I, if I had to sort of bring it down to about four or five points, and, and these are the things, Kirby, I would say, I don't want to lose after we get out of this. And the first one I'd say is, you know, the level of communication that we needed to manage COVID uh, was intense. And, um, and, and we've become a stronger, better organization for the cadence of the communication that we now have. So I want to, as, as an operator of this business, I want to figure out how to maintain that. I think, too, um, you know, mental health has become a big issue i mean for everyone because just this just didn't impact our company it impacted people's lives and so you know we increased our our, our support of our people through our benefits program gave them access to more resources to support them through that and um you know and and we've we've also developed a um a mental health committee that's sort of looking at um you know how our people are getting through this um, and, and how can we better support them? So I'd say that's been a positive. Um, you know, we, 
you know, from an IT perspective, we saw what the IT group could do in three weeks. So, you know, as technology, you referencing technology, well, technology is, co is coming fast and hard. And so, you know, that gave us a, a, you know, really good visibility into what our IT group is capable of accomplishing. So looking forward to leverage that down the road as technology continues to evolve. Um, and then lastly, I mean, it, you, you take a look at, because we're, most of us are running smaller businesses. We want to know how we can do it, become more efficient. And so, you know, we got really good at standing up and getting projects done quickly. Um, you know, one of which was just, you know, taking advantage of, I had mentioned at the beginning of this, that we were bought by, you know, Heritage is now working with the PT Holdings Group. And, and we were able to reduce our warehouse footprint and draw from the uh, Parstown, um, you know, depth and breadth of inventory, which has again made us more efficient in the Canadian operations. So you you kind of look at everything afresh, and and how do I maintain that going forward on the other side of this? That we've made high level of communication, high level of engagement with our people, with our customers. You know, constantly looking for better ways to do things. Um, you know, for for the benefit of all of us, and so. You know, if I had to sort of just reflect on the benefit of 2020, I think I'd summarize it that way. That's excellent. Excellent. Well, I, I would agree with you 100 uh, percent. You know, when you have a crisis, um, it does make you look internally. Uh, and, you know, my big thing was, you know, why do we do it like that? And if the answer is because we always have, then my answer is we're going to change it. And we did it. We did a lot of that, too. So. Well, Ken, I really did enjoy uh, talking to you today, and I really appreciate your time. Again, for our listeners, uh, we've, uh, we've had Ken Beasley here from Heritage Food Service, our, our uh, partners in Cefesa up in Canada. Thanks, Ken. I really appreciate your time, and I hope you have a great day. Uh, and I hope the listeners enjoyed uh, listening to myself and, and Ken today. Thanks, Kirby. I appreciate the opportunity to tell the Canadian story as always. Thanks.